if you can make your way back to your seats, we're going to get started. And um, open up in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 8. Leviticus 8 is our starting passage this morning. Um, our sermon series that we're in is entitled, Seeing Christ in All of Scripture. And we've gone through the book of Genesis and Exodus, and now we're in the book of Leviticus. And uh, we're covering uh, Leviticus chapters 8 through 15 today. So pray that uh, God will give grace uh, for that. We'll be kind of touching and flying by the chapter. So open up your Bibles or your phones and, and, and get into Leviticus 8. And then we'll be, I'll be touching in on verses throughout uh, Leviticus 8 through 15. So open up to Leviticus chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 6 through 9 in Leviticus 8 to start. And so... As you return to your seats, I want to uh, just draw your attention to one thing I mentioned last week, and it's this. Um, I mentioned that not only has your sin been taken away from you and your sin atoned for, but one of the glorious things is that you can learn from the sacrificial system is that your guilt has been taken away as well. And there's a distinction made in the scriptures between your sin and between your guilt. The reason I bring that up, you might remember last week, those of you who are here, I just talked about how there's many today that will talk often about how um, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive myself. The issue of the guilt offering touches in on that not only has Christ completely taken away your sin, He's also borne your guilt for your sin and the shame of your sin. He bore that on the cross when He was humiliated there. He bore that for you so that you do not need to feel the guilt of your sin. Sometimes you're aware God's forgiven you, but you're also still feeling bad about it in a way that it's good to feel contrition for sin and brokenheartedness. But an ongoing sense of guilt and a sense of, I can't forgive myself, that idea is not in Scripture that you need to forgive yourself. In Scripture, God forgives you of your sin and We'll learn about this next week on the Day of Atonement sermon from John, which I'm really looking forward to. Your sin and your guilt have been carried far, far away from you. And so um, the good news is, is you don't need to forgive yourself. God has forgiven you, and he's carried your guilt far, far away, never to be on you again. And so be comforted with that today, my brothers and sisters. And we learn that from the guilt offering in Leviticus chapter 7. I'm so thankful for the way the Lord has removed our transgressions from us, the worst things we've ever done, and the shame of our sin. For every believer in Christ, if you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, your your sins and your guilt have been removed away from you and atoned for. Isn't that awesome? Let's read God's Word. Leviticus chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. Let's read God's Word together. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water, and he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he he put the Urim and the Thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. And we learn from Exodus that on the golden plate was the inscription, Holy to the Lord. 
And so I'm going to get into the meaning of that in just a moment, but let's pray and ask for God's word to be blessed to our hearts this morning. God, we thank you so much for your holiness. And I pray that as we look at your holiness today in this passage of scripture and in these chapters, you would touch our hearts and move us, change us and help us to really see the value of your high priestly office and the sacrifice which you have rendered on our behalf. Help us not to go away unmoved. Help us to be stirred, Holy Spirit, so that we love Jesus with even more and more passion, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if I can have the points uh, placed up on the front at this time. The points this morning we're going to run through is the first one's going to be the beauty of holiness. And then the second point is going to be the glory of holiness. And thirdly, the sever- the sternness of holiness. And then fourthly, We're going to look at the separation of holiness. Let's look first at the beauty of holiness. And that kind of hones in here on this section I just read with the garments that the high priest wore when he was being ordained into the service, which is what Leviticus 8 is about. Aaron's getting ordained into the service of the Lord. And then in Leviticus 9, which is so cool, he's offering up his first sacrifices. So that's what's happening here in Leviticus 8 and 9. But we're going to see the beauty of God's holiness here in Leviticus chapter 8. What does the water represent for washing? What that symbolizes is an inner and spiritual cleansing and the clean hands and a pure heart. You'll see that phrase throughout scripture, clean hands and a pure heart that are required of a servant of the Lord or a priest. Here this is talking about Aaron, the high priest, who wears the gold plate on top that says holy to the Lord. He also has the names of the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed um, upon him. He, he also is carrying the Urim and the Thummim. It's a mysterious, what were the Urim and the Thummim? But what, what that stands for in the Hebrew is lights and perfections. And this is really an amazing thought, but the Urim and the Thummim sort of were, sort of characterizes like, almost like a pair of dice by which God's will was made known. Now dice is very common and conjures up sort of a very profane image, but the Urim and the Thummim would light up in different colors and would help the high priest discern what the will of the Lord is. And the Urim and the Thummim were capable of giving a positive, a negative, or a neutral reply to a question. And so you're going to see that throughout the Old Testament, that it was helpful in discerning God's will. And the high priest carried that because he was in part responsible for discerning the will of the Lord. But these beautiful garments, these beautiful vestments, they drew attention really to the supreme dignity and the holiness of the high priestly office. Why is that important? Well, the high priest was really the mediator between God and man, and he secured atonement for the sins of the people. The sins of the whole nation were really secured by uh, and were, were the atonement was secured for them through the high priestly ministry of the high priest Aaron. The garments symbolized, the beauty of the garments were such that if Aaron walked past us in this garb, you would know it. I mean, he would look so different from every one of us. And the reason why there was such glory and beauty to the garments of the high priest was it really symbolized the value of his ministry to the nation of Israel. When the people would see him, they would be reminded that a high priest needs to go once a year into the Holy of Holies and make atonement for the sins, not just of himself, but also for the entire nation. And so Aaron really carried a dignity uh, with him 
in his high priestly office. And as he's ordained into the service, it's a very holy time, but you see the beauty of God's holiness and just the beauty of the garments that the high priest wore. Gordon Wenham writing about the beauty of holiness and Aaron's garment says this, As Aaron in Old Testament times entered the tabernacle with the gold rosette on his head so that Israel could be accepted, so Christ entered heaven and ever lives to make intercession for us today so that we might be accepted before God. And so where you see a great connection with seeing Christ in Leviticus 8 is there's a connection in Revelation 1.13. I want to read this scripture to you. In Revelation 1.13, we read these amazing words. And in the midst of the lamb stands, one like a son of man was standing, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. So Christ, in Revelation, when the Apostle John sees him in his resurrected glory, and this is important for us, didn't just see Jesus' scars and his wounds, Jesus actually is seen wearing a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. What this is pointing to is that he is the definitive great high priest that Aaron only symbolized in terms of his ministry office. Jesus, as Jason mentioned a few moments ago, was not only the sacrifice for sin, but he was the great high priest who offered the sacrifice of himself. And so there's a beauty and a dignity to Jesus Christ. And in application to this, I just want to get you pumped up for heaven. Because when you see Jesus, you're going to see a lot of things. You're going to see a crown that symbolizes his kingly authority. You're going to see his nail scars in heaven. And you're going to see all the suffering he went through in order to purchase you and save you from your sins. You're also going to see his high priestly robes and the gold sash around his chest that symbolizes really his beauty and that he is the sum of all that's desirable. Um, He made atonement for our sins and the sins of all God's people so that we are accepted of God. You'll see throughout uh, Leviticus 8 and also Leviticus 9, oil being used in the ordination of Aaron and then in the offerings as well. The oil in Leviticus symbolizes dedication to God. And so the reason the oil is being used is there's dedication to God um, in the consecration of Aaron into the high priesthood. And there's also blood, blood placed on the horns of the altar and also blood splashed on the sides of the altar in relation to Aaron's ordination, but also in the first offerings he makes up in Leviticus 9. And that blood, it purifies whatever is whatever it's smeared upon, the blood purifies. And so oil symbolizes dedication to God. Blood really symbolizes the purification before God that enables you to really stand before God. One of the things you'll see in Leviticus 8 and 9, you'll see it as you're kind of uh, scanning through, is this happened with Aaron and his sons um, who were dedicated and ordained into the service of the Lord. The blood was actually smeared on Aaron's right earlobe, his right thumb, and his right big toe. Like, what's that about? You know, what what is happening there? And you'll later see um, oil... Uh, also smeared on the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe. 
um, you'll actually see it not just on the priest, but later on in the later chapters I'll get into when the, the lepers are cleansed and the high priest declares them clean. The same thing happens to them. Blood is smeared on their right earlobe, right thumb, and right big toe. And what is going on with that? Well, what it's really talking about here is that there's a consecration, there's a purification and a dedication to God of the priest's ears in hearing God's word, in his hands, in serving the people of God, and also in his feet that he walks in the ways of the Lord. There's uh, a really wonderful quote here by a man named uh, Dillman who writes, The priest must have consecrated ears ever to listen to God's holy voice, consecrated hands at all times to do holy deeds, and consecrated feet to walk evermore in holy ways. And it's not just the priesthood, it's also the common people who are in the uh, body of the nation of Israel. They're also dedicated into hearing God's word and also serving the Lord with their hands and also walking in his ways. And so I hope that really encourages you all um, as you ponder just the work of the Lord in relation to the beauty of God's holiness. And I hope it got you excited with the specific application of seeing Jesus face to face. I was singing that on the way in the church. Oh, to see you, Jesus, I can't hardly wait. That one song that we sing at times that really talks about what are you excited to see when you see Jesus and you see him face to face. You're going to get to see his high priestly robe and see the glory and the beauty of his holiness serving as both priest and sacrifice, and I can't wait to see the crown on his head as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Well, that's point one, the beauty of holiness. Let's move to the glory of holiness, and you see that in uh, Leviticus chapter 9 primarily where uh, we read in verse 22. Read in uh, Leviticus 9 verse 22 with me. Um, this is after um, Aaron is ordained. It's now a week after there was a week-long ceremony for ordination for Aaron and his sons into the service of the Lord. And in Leviticus 9, we read, Then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. So he's offering up the first sacrifices. It's really a cool moment. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings, which we learned about last week. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And so when Moses and Aaron come out of the tent of meeting, they bless the people. And look what happens. The glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And look at what manifests in verse 24. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. And what a moment for the people of Israel. Aaron offering up the first sacrifices as high priest after he's newly ordained. And the glory of the Lord is manifest. We learn in the New Covenant that Jesus Christ is actually the, the glory of the Lord. In John 1.14 it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The idea in the Old Testament of God's glory, the word in the Hebrew actually talks about that there's a weightiness to God. He's weighty. 
And uh, when, when the people encountered the glory of God, they reacted to it because there is real substance and weight in God. And it's often accompanied by an experience like this where the fire comes and consumes a sacrifice. And the people of God are realizing we are dealing with glory right now. We're dealing with holiness, something that's other. Remember, uh, the word holy means other or a cut above. It's, it's the opposite of the word profane or common. So you can see the distinction between the holy and the profane all throughout the book of Leviticus. And holy describes the things of God. And the distinction is, is that God is other. He's separated from us. And so there's a distance between unclean sinners and a holy God. But you're also going to see that the glory of God and that his weightiness is manifested and that he comes down amongst the people. He consumes the sacrifice that's offered up for their sins, showing the people of Israel, I accept the sacrifices that have been lifted up and made from the high priest on your behalf. And in the New Testament, we know that the offering of the high priest Jesus was accepted by God the Father on our behalf when he raised his son up from the dead on the third day. That is the testimony. That's the exclamation point that God has forgiven you of your sins. You are no longer in your sins. You are saved. You are forgiven. And the testimony from God the Father that you are in fact forgiven and you're no longer um, dead in your trespasses and sins is seen in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ was raised from the dead. And so there's a testimony there. And you see here the fire or the glory is manifest and fire consumes the offering. And you see this throughout Scripture where fire from heaven is manifest and it symbolizes really the weightiness or the glory of God and also the fire consuming the offering. So we see that Aaron is fully approved. And then we also see that the worship of God, it involves sort of a total response of man to God. The presence of God, brothers and sisters, was greeted with a shout, not silence. When they saw it, they they shouted. There There was a mixture here. It's very interesting because you see that there's a juxtaposition of sort of a, a shouting and then a falling on their faces. You think about these two extreme responses in worship. And this happens when the glory of the Lord is manifest. There's a mixture of joy, shouting. And so when the Ark of the Covenant comes back into the camp, when the Israelites are before the Philistines, later on you see a shout raised up in the camp amongst the soldiers in the camp. There's joy because... The, the symbol, the presence of God amongst the people of God, the Ark of the Covenant is coming in to the midst of the camp before the army fights the battle. You see that same kind of reaction here where they're, they're filled with a joy and with a shout, but there's also immediately, as they see the fire from heaven consume the sacrifices, there's sort of this joy mixed in with holy fear. And there, I want to point you to Psalm chapter 2 where it says this, Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Brothers and sisters, an application to this point here. Do do you have that mixture in your worship of rejoicing in the Lord with trembling? 
serving the Lord with fear, but also that the joy of the Lord is your strength. You have a combination of both of those things because I think that the right worship of a holy God is in response to his glory being manifested and, and supremely manifested in Christ and his finished work on the cross and resurrection from the dead. And there should be a mixture of fear and joy, shouting and falling on our faces. I never want you to be ashamed in our church as you're worshiping the Lord for shouting, for joy, for the fact that Christ has forgiven you of your sins. Lifting your hands, dancing, praising the Lord. I want you to be free to worship the Lord in jubilant exaltation and joy. And I also never want you to be ashamed when the Holy Spirit's impressing upon you to to get down on your knees, to bow down, to put your face down on the ground and really worship the Lord in a sense of the fear of Him. There should be both manifestations coming out from our hearts in our private devotions, our private lives, but also in our public worship in the corporate assembly. Let us also, in the church, as we see those different uh, bodily displays of worship, let us really celebrate our brothers and sisters and what the Holy Spirit's doing in them. Let's encourage expressiveness in worship biblically, Defined, and I remember Bob Coughlin a number of years ago saying that we should experience, there's a broad range of, of reactions in scripture. There's clapping your hands, shouting and dancing and rejoicing with jubilant exaltation, but there's also falling down on your face as though dead, complete silence, utterly just, uh, prostrate before the Lord. And when you're in that posture, we should experience in our worship all the different expressions bodily of worship that we see in the scriptures. And if we're reluctant ever to show any one of them, we just need to ask the question, why? What what would be holding me back from expressing to the Lord either jubilant exaltation with a shout or falling on your face before the Lord, trembling before Him, reverent and in awe, because he is a consuming fire, as Hebrews says. So let the glory of God's holiness spark your worship, and let there be a broad range of manifestations of expression in our worship, and let us all encourage that in one another. Various expressions that all honor the Lord, biblical expressions that all honor the Lord. When it's done sincerely and for the glory of God, let us celebrate that and encourage that in our brothers and sisters and in ourselves. So let there be joy combined with solemn reverence. You know, I was thinking of uh, this, just this weightiness. I don't, it's, it kind of reminds me of a lightning storm. <laughs> I was talking with my wife Shannon this past week. You remember there was that lightning storm this past week that hit around three in the morning. I don't know if any of you were up for that, but it was pretty wild. Um, I, I, I remember waking up during that lightning storm, and there's just something like exciting about it, you know. Just like, you see the light coming, it lights up your whole bedroom, even though your bedroom will be completely dark. It was scaring our dog. <laughs> That's probably why I woke up, but the lightning coming in was so brilliant and bright. There's a sense of, wow, oh my goodness, and a sense of excitement, but there's also this, whoa, dynamic. And I, I think that uh, moments like that help us to realize, I think, a little bit of what's going on. Lightning storms have a beauty and a sense of wonder to them, but there's also a sense of fear that comes at times with lightning storms as well. 
Um, I think you enjoy lightning storms most from a great distance. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If any of you have ever been in the Midwest, especially during the summer months, you might have seen the lightning out there is amazing. If you've never seen this, it not only just drops vertically, it also shoots across the sky horizontally. It's like, God, you're awesome. What's cool is watching it from a great distance. You can see it. It's like better than any laser light show that you could watch. And you just think, this is all, I'm an all-in and wonder of God doing this. And there's a beauty to it. But when it's right on top of you, there's a terrifying sense of all in wonder. I think that can be a, a sense, it, you love the beauty and you, you shout with joy at what you see in the display, but you're also like, okay, let's not get too close here. I think that's a sense of the glory of God, the weightiness of God. You don't enter into the presence of God like whimsically. There's a real reverence and an awe that you come before him with because our God is a consuming fire. So I hope that that helps you a little bit as you look at the worship that you offer up to the Lord. Let's look at the third point, the the severity of holiness. And there we're going to look at Leviticus chapter 10 and read verses 1 through 3 with me. We're going to focus in there on uh, verses 1 through 3. Now Nadab and Abihu, the, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. There is a quote from a man named Heinrich Haney, and he has this quote that I think all of you will resonate with. He just kind of describes the spirit of the age when it comes to God and his forgiveness. When he writes famously, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. That type of casual, presumptuous attitude often can pervade the heart of even professing believers, even today, casual about holiness. Casual about God, casual about sin in their life, and cavalier in the way they walk out their lives. Leviticus 10, brothers and sisters, verses 1 through 3 and the whole chapter are a strong reminder of the sternness of the holiness of God. There's beauty and there's glory and there's also a sternness to it that we must walk before our God with fear and trembling. Uh, John Calvin, writing about the sternness of the Lord, writes this, His sternness, no less than His leniency, should lead us to praise Him. So we should worship the Lord for His grace and for His mercy, but we should also, brothers and sisters, worship the Lord for who He is. That we want to consider both the kindness and the severity of God, Romans 11 says. And we want to worship Him for both attributes. And we see here in Leviticus chapter 10 a very sobering passage. And you'll see this throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, brothers and sisters. There is a list of men and women 
who did not take holiness seriously, who died before the Lord. And so I hope it drives out from all of us, including myself, of the mindset of, of course God's going to forgive me. That's his job. Sort of a mindset that it doesn't matter that I sin. I could just go on sinning because God's forgiven me. i got a free pass to sin as much as I want. Oh, brothers and sisters, let us meditate on Nadab and Abihu. The, the sons, the two eldest sons of Aaron, the high priest himself. What we learn by this is that we are often surprised today, brothers and sisters, not by grace. We're not surprised at grace. What we're surprised about is justice. And it ought to be the exact opposite. What ought to surprise us is grace and not justice when we're dealing with a holy God and his holy sternness. Some might say, I, why did God act in this way? But brothers and sisters, let us not read Nadab and Abihu and ask the question, God, why did you act in this way? Questioning God. Rather, let us ask, God, in light of my sinfulness and in light of your holiness, why is it that I'm still breathing? And let us be amazed, brothers and sisters, at God's forbearance and His patience with us. That He is so merciful and forbearing with us, even in our ongoing struggles with sin. And lest any of us say, oh man, you know, the God of the Old Testament here, man, He's rough. I I want the God of the New Testament. I want gentle Jesus, meek and mild is who I want. In Acts chapter 5, when the Holy Spirit's poured out at Pentecost, and in the aftermath after that, Ananias and Sapphira are a reminder in the New Testament when they lied to the Holy Spirit and they also were struck down before the Lord, that God is holy and to sin against Him is no small thing. Nadab and Abihu offered up unauthorized fire before the Lord. And their being sons of Aaron did not prevent them from being consumed by our God. It may be, brothers and sisters, that their motives might have even been good in why they offered up unauthorized fire, but God took action here. And what we can apply to our lives today from this, as we ponder Nadab and Abihu, is let us never walk presumptuously before him. Let us, as Aaron did, when we see the action of the Lord, let us hold our peace rather than charging God with wrong as we look at even events in the world today. It's very common, even for Christians sometimes, to have an attitude of very quickly questioning God for why God does what God does. Moses came to Aaron, the high priest, and said, Aaron, he's holy, that's Anybody who draws near to him, and that was your sons, we all had fair warning. God is going to be sanctified, and his name must be held up as holy in the actions of the priests, those who are near him. There's even a stricter judgment for those who are teachers of the word, seen in James 3, verse 1. There's sort of this mindset in Scripture that the 
the closer that you are in terms of your service to God, or even in the presence of God, the, the more dangerous it is. I mean, you look at Aaron goes into, and we'll look at this next week, the Holy of Holies once a year, and they tied a rope around his leg for a reason. That was because if he wasn't ready to go in, and he thought he was, and he dies in there, nobody could go in and get him without dying as well. So the rope was tied so that they could pull Aaron out. Lest they incur God's wrath as well. We tend to just think of God as like, oh yeah, he's like, he's like me. And, and no, God is holy, brothers and sisters. He's other. We learn this throughout the book of Leviticus and want to be reminded of this. We want to hold our peace rather than charge God with wrong. One other thing here in terms of seeing Christ. It's one thing for God to strike down Nadab and Abihu, who are sinners just like you and I, or God even to strike down anybody that he would choose to. What's amazing is that God struck down his only son. And do you know why he did that? He did that so that you would not be struck down and experience his wrath forever in hell. Aren't you amazed? brothers and sisters, at just the glory of the cross, that God would consume His own Son in order to save sinners like you and I, who by the grace of God have repented of our sins and trusted in Jesus. If you've not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, would you please do so at this time? Um, I don't know, but that walking around, we just don't know that we have... A lot of time left. Mark Burns highlighted that and just said and highlighted just the need for us to respond urgently to the gospel. The scripture is very urgent about it. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the time to repent and believe. Don't put it off until it's too late. Christ will forgive you if you trust in him. And you will be able to stand before the holiness of God because of his finished work on the cross. But brothers and sisters, do not come before the holy presence of God without the blood of Christ upon you. Believe in Him and trust in Christ today and be forgiven. You know, the uh, brothers, the two younger brothers after this, they were still serving in the tabernacle. And not only was Aaron told to hold his peace and not to question God, but the two brothers as well, they weren't allowed to grieve for their, bro- their the brothers that they just lost. The people of God were able to grieve Nadab and Abihu, but the two brothers were not. In fact, the two brothers weren't even allowed to carry their brother's body out of the temple. The cousins had to come in and carry out Nadab and Abihu's bodies because they still had the anointing oil of service, of dedication to the Lord on them in the tabernacle. The reason is because the unclean, by touching a dead body, they would have become unclean. And if they had the anointing oil of service from the priests in the temple and they carried out those bodies, they also too would have been struck down. And they weren't allowed to grieve or mourn because if Aaron would have wept and even questioned God, Aaron might have been struck down because it's our responsibility, brothers and sisters, to love the Lord Jesus Christ even more than we love our spouse even more than we love our moms and our dads, even more than we love our children. There's nobody else in our life that we are to love and reverence and serve first but God himself. 
And so Aaron's not allowed to grieve his two sons that he lost. You think, that, that's, that feels cruel to me. The issue here is, again, the holiness of God. We need to ask, whose side am I on? Am I on the side of my two dead sons who dishonored and profaned the name of our holy God by doing offering up the unauthorized fire? Or am I on the side of God? who is holy. Brothers and sisters, we learn a real clear application from this passage. May all of us, at all times, always be on God's side. Let us love our loved ones so much that we always side with the Lord. We'll love them best when we side with the Lord. And here, had Aaron grieved and lamented, and Moses warned him not to, it might have been a public declaration from the high priest to the people that I don't like what God did in striking down my two sons. And instead of that, Aaron is admonished by Moses, don't do that. And in your, and your brothers not being able to grieve, but they continue, they need to continue to serve and serve out their full seven days in the tabernacle here. The reason that happened is because God's name is holy. And everything that the priests were to do was to high, highlight and elevate His holiness. So much more I could say about that, but let's move on to point four. The separation of holiness. The final point, the separation of holiness. Let's look at Leviticus chapters 11 through 15. Here in Leviticus 11 through 15, there's a lot of descriptions of various things that make us unclean as human beings. The first thing you see is in Leviticus chapter 11 is you see that the Israelites could become unclean by the different animals that they ate. If they ate unclean animals they were able to be unclean. And then you look in Leviticus chapter 12, if you look there with me, you see the top header, purification after childbirth. After a woman gave birth to a child, she was unclean. Um, What you see there, and and this is where you think, I don't don't understand this. You've got to understand that under the new covenant, Jesus Christ did away with, he abrogated, he repealed, and he... uh, Cause these laws to no longer be in effect. Jesus declared all foods clean in Mark chapter 7. And then we also see it in Acts chapter 10 when God gives the dream to Peter of the clean and the unclean animals. And God says to Peter, rise, Peter, go and kill and eat. And Peter says, I'm never going to partake of that which is unclean. And God says to Peter, what I have declared clean, do not call common, Peter, rise and eat. What that was symbolizing was, that the gospel is now also for the Gentiles, like Cornelius. So do not hold back from giving the gospel to the Gentiles. Rise and kill and eat. Preach the gospel to all men, Peter. And there was a separation between the Jew and the Gentile. That's some of what's symbolized here. Between the Gentiles were able to eat all these different kind of foods, but not the people of Israel. Why were there unclean foods? And by the way, you want to thank God that all foods have been declared clean by Jesus. Because if you love bacon, bacon would have been off the menu for us had these laws continued into the new covenant. 
But thank God, and my one daughter loves bacon. Every time we're around bacon, she's like, yes, she like gives us like a little celebration. But we're able to eat bacon and enjoy it for the glory of God. Amen. But unclean foods were a reminder. When the Israelites sat down to eat that which is kosher or clean, when they sat down to eat it, it was a reminder every time they sat down at the meal that they were a distinct people, holy unto God. There's goodness in these laws that the Lord lays down and that it was a constant reminder of their distinction, that they were called out and separate from the Gentile nations around them. In Leviticus chapter 12, the purification after childbirth, you think, why would giving birth to a child render a woman unclean and not able to enter church for up to 80 days? Well, what we learn by someone being unclean for 80 days is this. We can profane ourselves and sin and become unclean in a moment. To make yourself clean, to be cleansed of the Lord, takes a lot. And so when we think of the cross of Christ and we're like, man, I'm clean now in the Lord, I'm forgiven. Let us look at these laws and see how long it took for a man or a woman once they were rendered unclean. They had to exit the camp in a lot of these occasions. They weren't allowed to be amongst the people of God. They had to leave in many cases of uncleanness. What that shows us is that forgiveness of our sins is no trifling thing. Forgiveness through the blood of Christ was hard to accomplish and God did it. So let this elevate your view that when you say I'm clean, I could come into the household of God today and draw near as, as Jason read from Hebrews 4 today. Let that ring through the lens of, of Leviticus 11 through 15 and let it cause you to marvel that I was once outside and far away. Now I've been brought near by the blood of Christ and thoughts like that. By reading your Old Testament and seeing the holiness of God and even sharper clarity, it helps you to appreciate the cross. And that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about going through the Old Testament with you, because we get to enjoy Jesus and what he did here. But you have to remember, I think the connection here in Leviticus 12 with, with women in childbirth is this. Part of the curse of sin that fell upon man in Genesis 3 when men, Adam and Eve, sinned against the Lord was a curse that affected childbirth. Your pains will greatly increase in childbirth. I don't just think that curse of sin affected just the physical pain of childbirth, but I think it also symbolizes that under the fall, we are all, before we're saved, in Adam. And as Tom referenced this morning in worship, we are stained with original sin or radical corruption from birth. We don't come out of our mother's womb saved and ready for heaven. We come out filthy. We come out unclean. There is never a moment when a child's born, even though they're so cute. I was looking at the pictures of little precious London Jones. I'm all fired up. I can't wait to see her. Um, and how precious... She is, but there's no, not even an infant child, as cute as they are, comes out ready for heaven. Atonement needs to be made. And I think what this symbolized, when a woman needed to be purified after childbirth, 
was that even in relation to a, a child being born into this world, mankind, like Psalm 51 says, David said, Surely I'm sinful from birth, from the time my mother conceived me. He's talking about the iniquity, the radical corruption from the fall that we have in Adam. Apart from any sins we actually commit, we just come out sinful. You might have heard the old expression that we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. You catch that distinction? We are sinners. And today in our age where it's very common for everybody to believe mankind is just basically good, man is good, we need to allow the Old Testament to preach to us as well as the New. Brothers and sisters, we do not come out of our mother's wombs innocent. There was only one innocent. There was only one who was perfectly righteous and didn't inherit the stain of original sin, and that's Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So I think every time a child was born and a woman who had just given birth is needing to cleanse herself, it was a reminder both to the woman, her husband, her kids, and to the nation that we are born into sin and we need a Savior. We need a Savior. So there's goodness. We can tend to judge God. God, why did you do that? It seems kind of cruel. No, these are gracious reminders that uncleannesses and iniquity and sins and transgressions, as Tom said, they need to be forgiven and that's no light thing. Look at chapter 13. There's laws about leprosy. And and Leviticus 13 and 14, these are about leprosy and skin diseases. The the reason that that's talked about, and I want to highlight that detail, is that the priest needed to make atonement for even just diseases of the skin. And if someone came down with the disease, they needed to dwell outside the camp. They actually needed to cross over in Jesus' time on the opposite side of the street and say, unclean, unclean. And a lot of times those who suffered from leprosy were lepers for life. They were separated from their family and they were removed outside the camp. That that feels kind of cruel, but I think what this points to, brothers and sisters, what can we learn for it for our life? You need to be perfect. You need to be whole. You need to be perfect to go before the presence of a holy God. You need to be blemish free. And the good news there and the gospel connection to that is this. Christ was your perfect sacrifice. And He has now declared you righteous, God has, so that when you go before him, as the exhortation in the doxology in Jude says, you go before him now blameless with great joy. You go before him without blemish, even as the lamb without blemish, Jesus Christ was offered up for you. So someone who had a blemish, you see other instances where even a, a priest who had um, who had a, a real bodily ailment or was deformed, was not allowed to serve. You think, oh, that seems kind of sharp. What that just shows and symbolizes that only perfection can come before the holiness of God. If you come before God 99.9% pure and 0.1% impure, it's not good enough. You need perfection. And that's what these laws point to when you when you look at these laws and they seem kind of distant in your mind. Let it remind you 
that perfection has been supplied to you through the righteousness of Christ and let that be a comfort to you. And then, and finally, after Leviticus 14 is Leviticus 15. And this really is, it, it just talks about any bodily discharge in relation to reproduction rendered somebody unclean. And again, we feel a real distance in terms of our contemplation of these things. But the relation in Leviticus 15 is that in verse 31, if you look there with me, it says, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. The the priests and the people were to judge between that which was unclean and that which was clean, and that which is holy and that which is common. What gives here with with this this passage, like what is going on in the mind of God? I, I'm going to share just a few thoughts, and I hope they serve you. Discharges are associated with reproduction, and that is connected with man's fall into sin. And so, children, like we learned about in Leviticus 12, are born sinful. And also, discharges can symbolize pollution connected with the fall. It also pointed the Israelites toward the need for sexual purity within marriage. And it also touched on the importance of personal purity sexually, even outside of marriage. Um, Separation, which was required for young men to separate themselves from outside the camp in, in, in the case of this, was needed in order for the sexually immoral or the sexually impure to be made clean again because of their uncleanness and their unrighteousness. So whereas intercourse within marriage required only to wash with water and to wait until evening, and they were allowed to remain husband and wife inside the camp and didn't need to leave the camp, which showed a distinction of the holiness of the marriage bed. There's a reason that cleansing was needed. And that, again, is most likely connected with the association with reproduction, with the fall, and children being born into sin, and the pain of childbirth being connected with part of the curse of man and woman falling into sin when Adam and Eve fell into sin. This shows a distinction in the eyes of God between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. So what can we learn about this? Is there relevance for us today? Yes, there is. There's relevance. Um, in our day, we tend to think of our natural selves apart from Christ. I said this earlier, but basically good. And we learn here that once again, the curse of sin that came upon us at the fall connected us with defilement, Corruption, pollution, and death. We don't walk around unpolluted. Even the people of God, they pick up dirtiness throughout their life. And here we learn that, yes, Christ has forgiven our sins once for all through the sacrifice of his blood shed on the cross. But you see this connection in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There is a need for us as the people of God to constantly go before the Lord and confess our sins again to the Lord. After you've had a rough day and you've sinned, you want to say to the Lord, Lord, forgive me for my attitude today. And you're forgiven. It doesn't mean that you have to get saved all over again. What it means is you've picked up the dirtiness and the uncleanness of yourself during the day and you can come before the Lord again and ask him for forgiveness and 
this doesn't deal with you got to get saved again. What it means in 1 John 1, 9 is that there's a sense of distance that we start to feel in our relationship with God through sin. And when we confess our sins to the Lord on a daily basis, it restores that relational connection with the Lord. That's what it's talking about in 1 John 1, 9. And you see that here with how offerings needed to be made again and again. You didn't just kind of get it once and done. Christ in the new covenant does it once and done for all time. Your past, present, and future sins are all dealt with at the cross. But there's also just this beautiful ministry where you can come before the Lord yourself and say, God, forgive me for my sins today. Forgive me for my attitudes today when you're driving home from work. Forgive me for the way that my attitude was bad toward my coworker today. I'm so sorry. Would you please forgive me, Father? You're already forgiven. You're already saved. You don't need to get resaved again, but you've picked up and you've been unclean, if you will. There's, there's a mindset here of, of reconnecting with the Lord, of, of washing and, and, and reminding yourself that Christ has died on the cross for your sins. So I hope that distinction is helpful and is a blessing to you. Um, and I just can't help but just marvel at what God has done for us in Christ. So, brothers and sisters, let us thank God for the atonement that the blood of Christ gives to us believers definitively and once for all. As Hebrews talk about, talks about, let us thank God for both the water that cleanses and the blood which purifies us of Christ. The cleansing of the Holy Spirit of all defilement, making us clean by regeneration and the washing of regeneration, and also the blood of Christ, which has been shed and which has purified us and has atoned for all of our transgressions and our guilt so that we are saved. In light of our uncleannesses, Tom, you and the worship team can return. In light of our uncleannesses, listen carefully. In light of our sins that we have actually committed, how is it, brothers and sisters, that we are alive here and worshiping today? In light of all the things that render us unclean and the sins that we still commit in our indwelling sin, how glorious is it, brothers and sisters, that the Lord paid for the wages of our sin, which is death. He struck down, not you, and me, but struck down his own son instead of you. He did this because he loves you. So turn to him in repentance today. Turn to him in faith this morning and pray this prayer. God, have mercy on me, the sinner, and you will go home to your house justified today. Trust not in your good works. The level of stain And the level of uncleanness, the level of sin that you and I have, it's too great for your good works to cover it. No, sacrifice needs to be made in order for you to be able to be brought into the camp. You and I deserve to be an outsider, to be outside the camp forever in hell. But Christ went outside the camp and suffered for you. He bore your sins in his body on the tree. He bore the pollution, the stain, the guilt, the corruption 
Himself, so that in Him you might be the righteousness of God. Let us stand and sing, Behold our God, and let us worship Him in spirit and in truth. In light of our sinfulness, in light of God's holiness, why are we still breathing? The reason, brothers and sisters, is that God put forward His Son, Jesus, and struck Him down unto death in the place of you who have believed. Christ died for your sins. So great is God's love for you. Hallelujah. Amen. Have a wonderful day. Enjoy. Love you, church. God bless you.